Hi, everybody. Welcome to the heart of the matter. I am so excited about today's guest, one of my best new friends. Her name's Leah. You guys are going to absolutely love her. So welcome to the heart of the matter. If you have not yet, please subscribe, like, share, and click, click below and share this podcast. So without further ado, here today is my best new friend, Leah. Leah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, KJ, for having me. I um, really appreciate it. I'm excited to talk to you today. Well, we're so excited for you to be here. Now, previously, I have interviewed my Motley crew, as I like to call them, but they have been other providers who have been therapists, such as LMFTs, social workers, counselors, like LPCs or LCMHCs in other states, you know, we've been reclassified um, as that, but you are a little bit different. You're my zebra in my crew. So please tell us and tell the audience, Leah, what do you do and what's your identifier? Absolutely. So my identifier is I'm a physician assistant. So I work in mental health. Um, I guess you could refer to me as a psychiatric clinician. Yeah. Um, I have been a PA for about two years. So what a PA is, if people aren't aware, we actually recently changed our name to a physician associate, although I'm not really sure when we're supposed to be transitioning to that. So cool. PA is you no know, works either way. Um, but we're very similar to nurse practitioners. Um, in that we, you know, diagnose, evaluate, uh, prescribe medications. We do um, usually, I say like eighty percent of what a doctor does. You know, mm -hmm. there's some some cases where we need to refer, but um, but I've been uh, working in this field for about two years. I worked in mental health and um, substance use. Uh, did some inpatient work for about a year and. Last year, about a year and a half ago, I started working from home and uh, worked for a company called MindBloom. And so what we do is prescribe integrated ketamine therapy um, for at-home use. Um, huge fan of ketamine for anxiety, depression, and a whole other slew of, of mental health disorders. Um, also started my own uh, business, so working with a local therapist of mine, and um, we're looking to eventually open an integrative medicine practice where we really treat the mind, body, soul, um, all together, very holistic-minded. Um, so, so yeah, mental health, uh, PA, I also am um, a life coach, so I'm a professional certified life coach, so I do some of that work as well. Well, that's awesome. So for the audience at home, can you tell us a little bit about what educational requirements there are for a PA? Absolutely. So um, have to have a bachelor's degree. Um, really, any degree is fine as long as you have the prerequisites um, for PA school, like anatomy and physiology, you know, biochemistry, um, certain different science classes. And then a physician assistant degree is a master's degree. So I went to school for 29 months. Um, here in, in Memphis, Tennessee at Christian Brothers University. Mm -hmm. um, and once we're trained really to be generalists, so like um, primary care type. But the cool thing about PAs versus nurse practitioners is we can kind of jump specialties if we if we want to. So um, if I start working in mental health and decide that's not for me, I could go find a cardiologist to 
to work under and do cardiology or, um, you know, work in the hospital, do surgery. So yeah, it's a, it's a two-year master's degree. Well, that's awesome. Well, how cool is that? I love it. So yes. mental health has kind of been your niche then. Absolutely. I, I knew for a long time that I wanted to work in mental health. Um, psychology really interests me. Um, so I majored in psychology and biology in undergrad. Um, and then I actually did a year of my LPC school before I went to PA school. Um, I, I decided to go a bit of a different route. You know, I got all these student loans, so I needed to kind of choose one path. And I figured I can do some counseling, you know, along with my, my PA work as well. Um, but really my own mental health journey and my, my own experiences uh, with family and, and things like that really got me interested. Um, and as I've been really working on my own mental health, um, I think that's so important. It, it, it really helps me help my patients so much more because I've been where they are, you know, and I am where they are a lot of times. And, and having somebody, especially like a doctor, you know, or a provider um, who typically is very uh, emotionally distant, you know, we're, we're taught that way in a way. So um, I, I have a little bit of a different approach to that whenever I self-disclose uh, to someone that I meet that, that also struggle with anxiety and depression. I just see their their affect, you know, they're like, oh, thank you. Thank God I can actually be myself and, and tell her what's really going on. And, and she understands and has been through the, the same thing. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Well, um, I want to ask you, because I want to follow some of the same questions questions that I've asked the other folks that have been with me. Um, what do you think are some of the biggest challenges facing folks that are in your same professional track that you are? Mm. Or do you think that there are challenges? I do think there are challenges. Um, in, in, in my same professional track, whether it be PA, NP, uh, MD, doctors, um, providers in general, you know, we're the way that we're educated, um, I think, sets up our own mental health to be poor. Um, the, the way that, you know, we're very much pushed in school, the way in the workplace where you work, you know, hours upon hours, and it doesn't matter how you feel or what's going on with you. Nobody really cares about that as long as you take care of the patients you know, make, make the money and go home. That's, that's really, that is what the bosses care about. So, um, I, I think that presents a lot of challenges, uh, not only for our own mental and, and physical health, but also the care of the patients. Um, so if, you know, I'm always about putting your mask on first before you, you put it on the baby, right? So you got to put your own mask on first. And, and I feel like that culture is, is very much reinforced. Now, I think it, it has started to improve as we learn more about mental health and where people are realizing how important that is. Um, but I, but I think that does present the challenges, the work, the work hours, um, the extremely high expectations, um, and, and the approach to treating patients, I think is difficult because if, if you're even, if you're primary care, you're really trying to like encompass the whole patient, but it's all about pushing out the meds, right? right. No, not much time for education, you know, 
They want people in and out to, to make the money. And so to really, truly educate people on what they need, the most important things mostly are nutrition, exercise, you know, making, you know, managing your stress. So that's basically what people will say. Make sure you're exercising, eating right, managing your stress. Nobody knows how to really do that. Um, so I, I think that presents a lot of different challenges. And then also, too, if you're in a specialty, um, you can only look at this certain organ. You know, you're only treating this certain part of the body when everything works together. And so it really can uh, present a narrow mindset. And then the communication between specialists and doctors is, is not great. And we don't have a really good system for that. Getting a hold of providers is really hard. So. Um, those are some of the challenges that I would say are, are pretty big for us in, in my you know lens. Yeah. Do you think that there, and I don't know if I'm going to ask this question the right way. And the only way I can say it is maybe using myself as the example. So I see like older clinicians or, or people who have been in the, in my particular arena longer than me and the way they practice versus the way I see younger clinicians because I'm a supervisor. Um, and then the way I practice, which, you know, I'm a weirdo, so I'm like, whoo, I'm out on my own anyway. But I see some of the dynamic changes between that two, like those two perspectives. And so, you know, sometimes I feel like I'm like caught in this kind of weird space sometimes. Like, even within my lifetime, the DSMB has been like rewritten or like redone twice, right? Because I have a new student right now. She's going to graduate in December and I'll say things and she's like, oh, that's not in the DSM. And I'm like, well, hell, it was in there like five years ago. And I'll go and I'll be like, oh, she's right. They took it out or they renamed it, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's just not that. It's just kind of even the, you know, talk about axis five you know they got rid of that you know no there are no axis fives and you're like well i like that but you know okay i get that and i even noticed that when i was kind of teaching her the other day and i went back to that model because it makes sense to me and you can kind of parse it out a little bit better when you're talking about how to diagnose so i see just this change in the way they're teaching now i don't know if i, I like it all because sometimes I don't think it makes sense. And you're like, quit being all this social justice crap and just take care of people. Like, stop some of this. And some of the older people, I don't even know what the hell they're doing. I, they're just out grazing. So <laughs> do you, I know it's crazy. I sound crazy when I say that. But see, you're laughing. You know what I'm talking about. I get about. it. I do. Because it's like they're, the young ones, I, they're doing weird shit. And the old ones, they're, they also are. <laughs> And I'm standing here going, having whiplash. So for you and your in your sphere, do you see similar things, or am I the only crazy one? No, you're not the only crazy one. <laughs> I do see I do see similar things, and I'll use myself as an example as okay. well. Um, you know, since I'm in a very niche you know, practice with Mind Bloom with the ketamine therapy, you know, there are a lot of times where. Um, we need uh, medical approval, right? So like kind of approval from a certain doctor, uh, depending on what what people present with. Um, and, and even working, you know, with therapists, we always ask if somebody has a therapist and, and 
you know, they're, if you're on medications, there's, you need to let those other providers know that you're doing the ketamine treatments. And so some people will say, well, my doctor, you know, is really old school. So I already know that they're not a fan of it, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so, and if you look at the research on ketamine, I mean, there's no denying that it works tremendously better than any of the antidepressants that we have out there now. Um, but that limited mindset, you know, it's easy to get set in your ways. And as we know, as we get older, that there's a reason for that. You know, there's parts of our brain that that just really like routine and, and it's uh, sometimes difficult to learn new things and you can get very rigid in, in your worldview um, and and being malleable to change and understanding that change is a constant and that we are always going to be evolving and growing and there's no absolute right way to do anything. Um, so yeah, I would, I would definitely say like, I can notice a difference between the, the older providers and, and the younger providers were a lot more cognizant of prescribing medications, especially controlled substances. I'll see a client who's on a, a bunch of different meds that shouldn't be used together. And a lot of times it's an, it's an older physician that, that is doing that. So, um, absolutely there, it, it, I would say it's very much similar in, in that, um, in that regard yeah I didn't know because I see that a lot and I'm like I get that we probably need parameters somewhere but it's like whoa there's like this inconsistency and it drives me crazy sometimes so I just didn't know if it, worked. it was just me my world yours <laughs> too absolutely okay well my next question for you is what does mental wellness mean to you what do you think mm. Mental wellness to me, loaded question, but I would say what's so important about finding your own mental wellness is finding the tools that work for you, finding your tools um, that make you feel mentally well. So um, we're not always going to have good days. Like you and I were talking earlier, how we're both having a bit of frustrating days but mental wellness to me is like a, a a sacred safe space that you have found within yourself um when the emotions are hard when the feelings are hard you have that safe space within yourself that has those tools that work for you and not everybody's different and we are all unique we're all connected but we're all unique in that way where you you go to your coping skills right your your ways of grounding your ways of releasing whether it be exercise you know yoga meditation um you know taking just taking a break taking a walk outside um making sure you're you're taking care of your all-around health right your physical health your, your mental health um i think mental wellness really encompasses all of of those aspects of health you know mental physical spiritual emotional um and and being able to have that safe space which can take a long time to to figure out right um and you have to practice and try different things because you know one thing works for one person and it doesn't for for the other um so yeah that would be my definition of mental wellness okay and so my next question then is what habits do you use to kind of strengthen that 
that safe space within you or around you personally mm-hmm, for your mental mm-hmm. wellness? Oh, well, um, of course, my I personally uh, started the ketamine treatments in, in January. Um, that opened up a whole new world for me because I had a lot of blocks. Uh, I knew all of the things to do, you know, I've done them here and there, but the consistency, um, was, was not there. So, um, you know, so medication, right. Uh, therapy, I also started therapy, um, around the time that, that I started the ketamine treatment. So having that person that is not your best friend that you bombard, you know, and kind of emotionally vomit on, um, I I think is so important. I mean, most everybody in this world could benefit from a therapist and, and having that place where you know that you're going to be able to work through some of this, this harder things that, that are going on in life. Um, finding space every day for those mental wellness activities um, routine, I think, is really important. Just some kind of routine that you can take anywhere with you, you know, not just in your house, but that you can take with you. So for me, that has been meditation um, at some point every day, which I could, for the life of me, not meditate prior to the ketamine treatments. Um, so I feel like that's one thing that has, has really helped open that world up, um, you know, exercising. Um, I'm coming to realize that my goal eventually will be to exercise at some point every day. That's so important for me personally, uh, with especially people with anxiety and a lot of body anxiety, um, that it gets a whole lot of that energy out because anxiety is just energy that doesn't know where to go. It needs to, to be directed. So, um, you know, meditation, exercise, um, and finding my own spiritual practice as, as well. Um, you know, mental health and spirituality to me are so linked and so important. So, you know, whether it be, you know, going to church or uh, Christianity or Buddhism or whatever, you know, or just spiritual practice in, in general, not necessarily any kind of domination, but having that relationship with the universe and and that understanding has really helped find that sacred space within myself. Um, you know, I, I've also gotten into like breath work. So going to like breath work classes and, and trying new things and um, being scared even to, to try new things. So, um, yeah, those are those are a few of the practices that that have really been helpful for me. Like, well, eating right as well. I think it also I, I realized like how much food impacts my mood. Food absolutely impacts people's moods, and I feel like that is not stressed enough. Um, So, yeah. Yeah, I was uh, working actually on a window of tolerance video for the podcast. And, you know, I, I think what a lot of people don't realize is that, you know, we have multiple windows of tolerance within us based on the situation. You know, I love conflict if it's interpersonal it's like man come at me because i want to fight let's do it Uh, (laughs) it's horrible (laughs) you know i'm the person who orders the food at the restaurant it's like it comes to me i'm like oh no no Mm this is not what i ordered please send it back and you know if that's shaped by my history of being a poor white kid in the trailer park it's like oh uh this is not what I wanted. This is not what I paid for. And my husband, although raised for too, his whole thing is like, 
you know, don't pitch a fit, like just eat it. Like, just be thankful. Like you got it, like shut your mouth. Right. And he will avoid mm -hmm. it at all cost. But mm -hmm. he's also the guy for 35 years that like went to war and shot you in the face. <laughs> Poor right. Right. It's like, and I wouldn't do that. Although I don't have good gun skills, but I might later on. But you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So it's absolutely. Like you, yeah, but you see these different interpersonal windows that you have, or I should say different windows of tolerance within yourself. Like, I would never think that I could go to another country and take it over and shoot people in the face, right? He has no problem. But, like, take me to Rafferty's and cook my steak wrong. And, oh, bro, everybody in the place is going to know about it. And he would uh -huh. never say a word, right? So it's really funny how within us we have all these different little windows of tolerance, right? Absolutely. Based it, on our experiences because yeah. it shapes us. Yeah. Based on them all. So I think even mm -hmm. when we're in relationship with other people, we have to be really cognizant of their perspectives too in these different nuanced things because it impacts us greatly and we react to it. And it's, you know, it's really interesting when you start thinking about it. And just this very morning, he ran out of beard oil and put a different one in. And he went, and I saw just this kind of visceral reaction. And I was like, what's wrong? And he's like, I ran out of beard oil and I had to put this old wax in. And I smelled it and it made me think of, you know, this old job I had. And he's like, and my gut hurt. Huh. And he's like, I'm going to not use this anymore. I'm going to find the old one. And I was like, Oh, the body's keeping score, you know, and I went on this big thing and he was like, I don't even know what you're talking about. I'm just throwing this away and not getting a new one. But like, that was a key example, right? Mm -hmm. Is it, it's a trigger. It's a trigger. Yeah. It really was. It it was, the smell was tagged to a job, right? Mm -hmm. His last job that he had and he did it. He didn't want to like, remember it. And like, he had a stomach ache. Wow. And he's like a tough guy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But he, he didn't yeah, tie he it is. together, right? Right. Right. Funny, right. You yeah. did though. Uh, well, yeah, it's my job. Don't therapize me. But I think it's important to learn how to do that ourselves. And mm -hmm. and I and I will say that's one thing that ketamine has really helped me personally with and a lot of, of my clients is making those connections. Because we get triggered all day, every day. And if you're walking through it blind and you have no idea, all of a sudden you just put beard oil on and your stomach hurts and you feel really anxious and, you know, not good. It, it you know, that can really leave you feeling not really out of control. Um, and, yeah. you know, and so I think the triggers, recognizing them, because we're all going to get triggered. They're never going to go away. We just have to learn from them. So, Leah, will you do my audience uh, a little bit of uh, some, some psycho ed and kind of explain the differences between like SSRIs and the norepinephrine kind of things and ketamine? So they just have a general idea of the typical medications that providers prescribe and ketamine, which, by the way, I'm on the ketamine bus, so I love it. So go ahead. <sighs> 
So um, you may just talk about ketamine or, or the well, other medications as well. Just if you could give a little uh, information about the others, just so that, because I think that's for the listening audience, that's pretty much the standard that they're used to hearing about. Absolutely. So um, if we're just talking mainly anxiety and, and depression and some, a few of the other major mental health problems, of course, the medications we have to treat right now are the antidepressants. So that's going to include SSRIs, so serotonin um, that works on serotonin. We have SNRIs, which works on serotonin and norepinephrine. Those are the two main classes that are used right now. There are some others um, that aren't used as much, so like tricyclic antidepressants, those are an older class. Um, and um, so those are the main ones I would say. We have also mood stabilizers as well and, and antipsychotics that can oftentimes be used for an adjunct for anxiety or depression. Um, anxiolytics, so that would include like the benzodiazepine class, um, you know, Xanax, Valium, um, Ativan, um, and then you have some some off ones like Buspar uh, for anxiety. You have hydroxyzine, just kind of like a hyped up Benadryl, uh, that can be helpful for anxiety as well. Um, now, with, with we'll just kind of focus on the the two, you know, the two major antidepressant medications. So serotonin, norepinephrine um, are the two that they really work on. They also, you know, work on dopamine and less of a direct way. With ketamine, um, ketamine has about five mechanisms of action that, that it works in the brain. Um, and, and it targets it in a completely different way. So it works on NMDA receptors, which are very much linked to neuroplasticity in the brain, which is your ability of your brain to grow new pathways. Um, it also works on the glutamate receptors, which are very much linked to anxiety uh, and depression symptoms and trauma, of course. Um, it, it has about three others that are that are kind of similar in terms of what it's working on. Um, but it, it completely, it also helps with inflammation, I'll just say that. But it really helps to reset the whole neural pathways of the brain, specifically in the parts of the brain, like the prefrontal cortex, um, the amygdala, and the parts of the brain that are associated with, with a lot of the mental illness that we experience. And, you know, with let's just focus on the outcomes, right? So with ketamine and, and one of the biggest studies on ketamine done, about 89% of people had a reduction in their anxiety and depression symptoms after four ketamine treatments. Let's compare that to, you know, studies done on antidepressants where that's about 50% and that's not four treatments. That's after, you know, probably a month or two on antidepressants. So, um you know, it, it's a completely different approach to to treating mental uh, illness. The studies really speak for themselves. And I think what's most important is the reset of the brain chemistry and, and the neuropathways. Not only that, but it's really teaching you how to meditate, how to get out of your your own head for about an hour long. And learning those skills that you need to sustain this process. Um, ketamine can work just just wonderfully for somebody that wants to go get an IV uh, treatment and not have any integration, any therapy 
that has rapid acting uh, antidepressant and anxiety effects. Um, but those are eventually going to wane off. And I had a client who really explained it well is that it, it's kind of like a, a tree branch, right? So the ketamine helps start to grow those new branches. But if you don't integrate the necessary changes into your life, which is all about self-care, really, um, it's going to prune, they're going to prune up eventually. So you'll oftentimes see people that are helped by the ketamine and, you know, by the month after they're done, they're kind of back to, to where they were. But then you look at their lifestyle and, okay, what changes have you made, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, that really speaks for itself on how important it is. Um, I, I think too, um, we're really trying to emphasize the importance of integration um, because in a normal psychiatry office, right, you're going to go talk to the person for longer for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not going to have much to say in your follow-up visits. They're going to be about five minutes and you're just going to keep getting refills of your meds. You know, there's no requirement of therapy a lot of times. Some, some people will require it, but um, you're just taking these meds for years and years and years and, and still struggling. I think you have to look at the side effects of, of the medicine, um, you know, taking it for so long and you're often told and I just don't believe that, that that's the case. I think mental illness is like a physical illness. Sometimes they're chronic and sometimes they're transient. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I think that the just handing out drugs um, is, is a part of it. But I think also, too, just how the medications are working in the brain. Um, you know, with the SSRIs and SNRIs, you're really only targeting certain specific receptors in the brain. Whereas versus something like ketamine or even non-drug treatments like neurofeedback and biofeedback and hypnotherapy, even brushing your teeth with your left hand if you're right-handed, that increases your neuroplasticity. Meditation increases your neuroplasticity. So I think it's all about the approach to the brain and how what you're doing to treat it, right? Are we just going to target these chemicals that may or may not be involved in what is going on? Um, or are we going to kind of do like a global reset, right? And, and really work on the, the habits and, and the different things that we need to do for wellness. So someone could benefit or or need, you know, ketamine with neurofeedback and maybe some EMDR uh, therapy. And also they need to refrain from gluten and then they need some supplements as well. Like you really have to take from a bunch of different places in order to treat it and not just prescribe someone Prozac and Xanax. I just think that's not good practice. And, you know, that maybe uh, offend some people because that's what they do all day, every day. But I mean, why are we the only uh, specialty that doesn't look at the organ that they're treating? Um, you know, Dr. Uh, Daniel Amen, I don't know if you've heard of him, KJ, but yeah, I mean, what he does is so ideal. And that, you know, is something very similar that I want to do. You know, he, he does spec scans on mm-hmm. the brain. So he can look at the brain and see exactly what type of ADHD you have, you know, or if you have trauma, if you have, you know, they do all kind of testing on, on food allergies and, and sensitivities. I mean, they really take into account the whole person and they actually look at the organ that they're treating. They can very much specify treatments for each person because one type of ADHD may be helped by 
a stimulant and another type, it could make it a whole lot worse if you give them the stimulant, right? So um, that whole model to me is so ideal and, and what I hope that we can get to one day. Well, I mean, you know, not that you want me to get on my soapbox, but I will since you brought it up. Uh, it's because <laughs> it's not paid for by insurance. That's oh. why. So oh. let me just drop that little nugget. Mm. That's why. Because those kids aren't paid for and neither are 95% of the other tests that he runs. Right. And who can afford that? Nobody. Not the normal person. I mean, I mean, what you do isn't covered by insurance. It's not a pocket, so it's kind of out of reach for most people. So I mm -hmm. hate to say that it's really hard for most people to venture out, especially like right now, the economy sucks and inflation's high, and it's just one of those things. So people are gonna go for the what's covered. What can I get? You know, and I hear it in my arena where a lot of times therapy is covered, but people pick insurance with such high deductibles so they can afford it. Then they can't afford the deductible so they can come. So mm -hmm. I get that a lot lately. Mm -hmm. So that's a, that's a big issue. That is the, uh, not, I could go on my own soapbox with, with that. Um, you know, it seems like insurance and, and even clinical studies and they're they're um they can be very constricted and they're very much behind um behind a very five at least five years at least behind what is not what is really helpful yeah if not more yeah absolutely more i mean when yeah. i read research and it says like uh you know our our brain is really in our gut and you're you're telling me you're feeding school children the crappiest lunch there is and you know it's not organic it's all processed it's a slab of pizza that doesn't even look like it's pizza <laughs> you know we got a problem here and then you know we got kids with adhd and high rates of autism and high rates of suicide and mental health and you want to tell me why well should we start at school lunch i don't know mm -hmm. like a those kids are in school. Seems like a place to start. Absolutely. And that we have the research on that, on yep. what these types of foods do. But we're still not, they're still not changing it. So even when it's there, it, it's still anything. not being changed. Right. So what does that mean? That, that really, I, I, I think a lot of people are understanding, like, the people in charge aren't necessarily telling us or providing the things that are going to be helpful why is that why is that well i can only draw a couple conclusions my first conclusion is hmm it's just going to cost too much money to make people well so damn let's just keep those dollars in our pocket number two hmm somebody could be benefiting from all these sick people hmm who could that hmm. be Hmm. Can't be the farmers because we don't have those anymore. Yep. Well, that leaves a couple people. It's it not does. me because I can promise you reimbursement really sucks. Yes. And I'm not making it. So 
I'm not getting the money. I don't hear you're getting the money. Who's getting it? Could it be the people who are giving the little pills out? Could be. Could it be the people who are making the pizza slices of what not look like pizza? Pharmaceutical companies, insurance companies, uh, probably a whole slew of, of doctors and, and specialties and 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 the government. I mean, like that that just impacts everything. And if you really think about that, it's disturbing. It's disturbing. And I guess my biggest question is how what do we do? How how do we go about trying to change this in a in a way that it'll actually work? Oh, I've been thinking about this. Because I got, I would use the F word, but I'm going to try to restrain. I got so pissed about this this past week. Because, now, you're not in private practice anymore, so you probably have the insurance. I don't know if you do. You don't have to answer that. Okay, then you're in my boat. So, for people who are watching this, they probably don't understand this dynamic. So, let me just roll it out there for those folks. because. They don't know what we have to endure doing this job that we do because it's a calling. That At least that's my perception. Mm-hmm. Most people, I would say 80 to 90% of the people who go into this field, mental health care, we do it from a place of service. It's a calling that we have upon our life. That's why we do it. Like It's never like, man, let's stick it to the man. I'm going to get rich. I've not met that person yet because if they are, they're probably billing illegally because that's the only way you're getting rich doing this job. So I, I was thinking about this and I thought the reason we have no money and we have no power is because we're like churches. They have no money. They have no power. They have no advocacy. They have no rights. Mm. Who has the power? Who has the advocacy? Oh, it's all these assholes. Sorry, I'm going to get fired up. I may say the F word. If y'all, I will take it out of the script once I go back and edit. So I'm just going to say that right now. So if you hear it come out of my mouth, just know I'll take it out later. Motherfuckers. So yes, I'll take it out. (laughs) It's gonna happen. He couldn't stand it. <laughs> but it is Big Farm. It is the government. It it's these people who have banded together to centralize power. We can't do it because we are individuals who go, let's just put a shingle out. This is what we're gonna do. Right? Here's how we could do it. I see it this way. I may need you. What if we could do it by state to begin with, but I think it will eventually, we could do it nationwide. I'm already talking to this guy. Tell me what you think. What if we could get independent providers to put their money collectively together? I see it working three ways and we would get somebody to like put it in trust to invest so we could grow the funds. One pot could go towards us all having insurance. So health insurance. Because we don't have it. So then. Oh, God. 
Well, before I let you go, I always ask, I have two things. I always ask, I want to make sure you get your turn since I have like monopolized our conversation. One, can you share what have been, if any, because you're perfect, but if you weren't, I can't believe that you're not because you are. Have you had a failure that you're like, oh, this failure was horrible. But as it's passed, you're like, that taught me something. Anything like that? Oh my God. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely, I have. Anything to share? Um, yeah, absolutely. So when um my mom, so my mom um had breast cancer. Um, and she passed away in 2011. So that was when I was in college and undergrad. Um, at the time, I was president of my sorority, um, really highly involved. And up until that point, you know, I would say I was, I was very high functional and um, didn't have much issue with, with mental health, maybe some anxiety and stuff. But after she passed away, you know, one of the things that that really gets me with just like mental health you know i went to my primary care doctor and told him i'm feeling good you know i'm feeling kind of depressed you know three months ago my mom died and so i get a prescription of prozac and, and no referral to therapy so if you can imagine you know the the kind of downward spiral that ended up happening over the next year um, I, I just was, did not know how to grieve. I did not know how to deal with my emotions. I was not taught any of that. You know, parents loved them. They they did the best they could, but the emotional intelligence and, and things, you know, my mom also had bipolar disorder. So that had affected me a lot more than I realized. So I started failing classes, um, started making just like poor decisions, got really depressed, got really anxious. I ended up taking some time off of school um just to kind of reset and so during that time you know I, I made a lot of mistakes and I think the shame around it and the judgment of, of other people like really got to me because you go from being kind of on top I guess to to falling all the way down um and, and so over time you know I I really learned to let go of the shame around that and I learned so much during that time period I think that was really um, part of a, an awakening time for me because I learned how important it is to to take care of my mental health uh, my physical health even though my mom couldn't couldn't didn't do it very well for herself that's not my story you know mm -hmm. um and and so it, it it's been a definite uphill battle from there. But I made a lot I've made a lot of mistakes during during that time that that you know I used to regret and I don't regret anymore. Um because it's all part of, of my story. It helps me figure out who I am. Um and and yeah. So that that, that really just rings true um to me as far as mistakes and, and moving through it. Yeah, I like that mm -hmm. story of resiliency. We find it in some in some different places, don't we? Absolutely. Yeah. So my last thing I'd like to ask is, you know, if you had a couple minutes, ever how long you really want, to share your pearls of wisdom, what mm -hmm. would you share with anybody out there? Mm. Pearls of wisdom. I would say um learn how to be present um being look i have this this rock that i made back in 2013 i don't even know that how important it would be but it says be present i painted this rock 
And and that's that's a thing that I feel like has come out of a lot of my clients as well that are who who are doing the ketamine treatments that you know are learning how important it is to be present because when you're present you can't have anxiety or depression because anxiety is fear of the future and depression is shame or fear of, of the past ruminating on the past. Um, even people with ADHD, you know, if you're like inattentive and all that, you're not being present. Um, if you're upset, having obsessive thoughts like that, you're, you're not being present. So, um, whatever that means to you and whatever ways that you can find to, to be present, I think is so, so important. Um, number two would, would be kind of alongside of that is like finding the tools that work for you. Um, whether it be therapy, um, medications, you know, yoga, um, you know, going to some social club, uh, being involved in that, um, different grounding techniques, coping skills that when you do get stressed out and you do get triggered, um, you have your toolbox of things and it may be changing. It may change all the time. It's going to be constantly evolving. And so being adaptable to change and knowing that change is so important um number three is is um emotions are not meant to last so emotions are different than feelings right i don't know you know this kj so emotions are, are like a chemical brain response and and the feelings are what our mind uh continues to build off of those emotions that are felt because they only last 90 seconds emotions only last 90 seconds and they turn into feelings whenever our mind and our body are holding on to them. So whatever ways you can find to move through your emotions and feel them, and they're not permanent, they're only temporary. So really trying to learn those brain hacks because we're like a computer. We really are a computer. And so you have to figure out how to, how to work this computer and maneuver it to work in the best way possible um, for you. Um, so. Yeah, I would say those are those are some of my my pearls. One thing I have done for myself that I think works really well, um, you know, I'll have all my tools that I'll do if, if no matter what. And then, of course, I have some if I'm feeling wonky. And then sometimes you just have a day where you're just depressed and you're mad at the world and you don't want to do anything and you just want to lay in bed and watch TV. Okay, let's do that for 24 hours. 24 hours to be annoyed with life and to be frustrated and to hate everything and hate everyone and be sad and, and, you know, kind of be in that yucky part. Mm-hmm. But after that, you got to do something to get out of it. So putting that time limit on it has been a game changer for me. And it really helps that, you know, the, the, the episodes can't last any longer than that because I'm trained myself to do that. But you also have to give yourself the space to feel yucky sometimes, right? And and depression, I think to me, a lot of times is your body screaming, I need rest. I need a break. I need a break from this environment. This is something and this is not working for me. I need time. You know, so listening to your body um, and, and giving yourself that, that space is, I know for me, been extremely life-changing. Well, those are all wonderful things. And I think if anybody were to do a combination of those things or just a few, they would definitely have and build more resiliency to handle the day-to-day struggle. Yeah. Yeah. We can't do it by ourselves. We can't. We are social creatures. So, you know, finding your tribe 
um, creating your own family just because you were born into a family doesn't mean that's who you're your has to be your family forever so you know just finding those people that are your people i mean i think that's another component that is left out a lot and is extremely important for mental wellness yeah i totally agree mm-hmm. with that and you know who your people are you know <laughs> yeah. and if you don't have them yet you'll find them yeah. you have to be open well, thank you so much for being with us today and, and teaching welcome. people about what you do in your world and helping us understand how the brain works and medications work on your brain and sharing what you do and your passion with us. It's important. Well, I appreciate you having me. Thank you so much. And yeah, I, um, I'm, I'm really honored to be a part of this. I can't wait to see what it turns into. Well, I know that you have a lot more to share and I know our audience is very excited for all the things you're going to teach them in the future. So everybody, that's like your little teaser. Leah's going to be back to, to share more of her knowledge later on. And you guys will be able to find everything, um, on the website. So thanks again for joining us. And again, if you haven't already, please like, click, subscribe, and share this podcast. And remember, wherever you're at in the world, you found your home. Welcome to the heart of the matter. Bye.